Welcome to The Rodcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business. Hello, everybody, and a happy new year to you all. Welcome to the first episode of 2023 with myself, Manish Kataria, and Adam Lawrence, where we're going to actually be doing Q4 Mastermind episode. So we're looking at top investment picks and we're going to be monitoring them. We've had some good, bad and the ugly already so far in our picks for the last 12 months. So it's always interesting to have a discussion about those, see what's worked well so far, what hasn't and where we think things are going. So welcome, Manish. Welcome, Adam. I hope you've had a good Christmas. And shall we start by kind of having a quick discussion about what's going on in the financial and investment markets? So Manish, do you want to get us started? Sure. Yeah. Happy New Year, everyone. Um, Rod, Adam, and all, all the listeners. Um, well, look, we, we all know it's been an interesting 12 months or so, right, in the macro world, in markets and property, interest rates, inflation, and we know the story. And yeah, it's, um, I'm pretty bullish, actually, uh, to be honest, I'm, you know, with markets, you know, we're always looking to the future. And we know it's a bit of, we know the combination of events and macro developments has not been great. But because we're always looking forward, I would look to this sort of direct, uh, where are the macro indicators going? So, you know, inflation looks like it's peaked, touch wood. It looks like it's kind of reached its peak October, November, certainly in the US. And and in the UK, if we haven't peaked, I think we're pretty close to the peak. The question is really, you know, how far it drops from here and how quickly it drops. Interest rates, I think there's some light at the end of the tunnel. We kind of have an idea where they'll peak. We haven't reached a peak yet. And I think growth indicators aren't as bad as what people were fearing three or four months ago. So, you know, all of that at this stage, looks like it's a positive combination for the outlook, right? We know it's bad right now, but it's for the outlook, for equities. Property, it's always a lagging indicator. So I still think it's going to be challenging this year. You know, you've got interest rates, which are still going to go up maybe 1% from here. We're at three and a half, maybe up to four and a half is where they'll peak. And, you know, Mortgage rates are higher than that. So I'm struggling to find property. I mean, I'm still looking out for property. I sold something last year. I'm looking for new opportunities. I haven't really pushed the button yet on new things, but I'm struggling to find vanilla deals which are yielding more than the mortgage rate and uh, just on a vanilla basis. So, you know, unless I can find something which gives me the ability to add significant value or I can find a great deal, which you two are much better at doing than I am, you know, then that's something that, uh, you know, that, that would sort of swing it for me. But as things stand now on a vanilla basis, I'm struggling to make the numbers stack up. So I'm, I'm more bullish on equities from here. You know, I'm seeing stuff with opportunities with good yield. So whilst we're waiting for markets to recover, in some markets have already recovered, you know, the UK finished up on the year last year, the US wasn't too good. But uh, you're still getting decent dividend yields in a lot of these things, which I know we'll talk about later. So that's my kind of uh, sort of outlook summary, really. Very interesting. I guess my only point on the finding vanilla deals that kind of beat the mortgage rates is 
investing for the longer term and with a view that rents might go up over time to beat that. But again, it's, it's always a difficult one, isn't it? Because that's reliant on wages increasing. And if wages continue to increase, then is inflation going to go up? And we've got this whole circle or spiral again. Um, Adam, what, what, are, what are your thoughts? Yeah, really good stuff. I think just to, to sort of closing on that point that both of you have just made, really, the one side is self-evidently true. You know, the mathematics of things stacking up and people getting caught by investment interest coverage ratios, apart from anything else, has not been a factor, really, almost anywhere in the country for years and years and years, since about 2015, 2016. And, of course, they were, they were only changed in 2017 by the PRA, 125% on a five-year fix to come into, well, not law, but strong guidelines, and 145% on shorter than five-year mortgages. Uh, they're now very much in play, even the 125%, and there's a lot of stuff that simply doesn't mathematically stack up for leverage. So if you think about momentum, BRRR, whatever you want to call it, it doesn't work for a lot of things at 75% anymore. And finding the 25% off deals was hard enough in the first place. Then you've got a few other things working against you in terms of you've got the lag in terms of prices softening a bit. October, November, December, most of the indices have sort of seen that, although the ONS didn't agree with what Nationwide and Halifax said. It's hard to know the exact methodology that Nationwide and Halifax use because they've obviously got the data that they've got in-house from all the mortgage lending and remortgaging new loans and remortgaging that they do and they do have a bit of a black box that spits out the number um the ons is more laggy in as much as it will just see what's actually transacted so it'll be deals done in you know may june july that completed in october and auction purchases from september that go into october's figures there's the, definitely the mathematical side of it and i, I totally agree with what manager was saying on that front as rod was saying we're very much looking on the other side of that and looking at a a pretty strong rent increase over the next five years. We've probably nearly doubled expectation for rent increases over the next five years, not because we're desperate to try and make things stack up, but because we see that direction of travel. And as Rod was saying, the old wage price spiral, that's the one thing it's very, very clear this government hell-bent on ensuring doesn't really happen. Although quietly, some of the strikes have been resolved with some double-digit pay increases, though it looks like they've kind of have to have been when you look at things like criminal barristers and um, some of the, the special situations that some of them have found themselves in after a, a decade plus of austerity, really. I'm not sure about being necessarily too bullish on equities. I don't think the UK never really took its medicine like the US did last year because it hadn't had those big increases in 2020 and 2021, although it did have all the stimulus. But generally speaking, the the market, the stock market tends to front run, um, whereas the property market tends to lag behind when you're talking about recessions. So I'm thinking a relatively challenging year. I'm still thinking inflation is going to be more difficult than is currently being predicted. Whether how, how the wage thing will play out is going to be a difficult one because people have taken a pretty bad state of events from last year. But then if you wage rises were based on September 2021's inflation, then that was a, a very difficult one. Whereas now you're looking at a, a fairly different world. We'll see where the private sector ends up really as the main arbiter of, of that market, I think. I'd be interested to hear both your thoughts on 
what you see happening with future earnings for equities and how that translates into share prices, yields when benchmarking against other investments. There's a lot of talk in the press at the moment about earnings dropping based on possible recessions. Obviously, it's going to be very dependent on the industries that they're in and things like that. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? The thing is, you've got to bear inflation in, in mind, haven't you? So there's going to be an organic, natural amount of earnings inflation, and you'll be able to sell, in theory, 10% less goods this year and still hit the same earnings as you might have done last year, uh, if we take the UK figure as correct, which obviously we could we could take apart quite easily. Um, well, not if your costs have gone up. There's a big difference, isn't there, in between you know, real, what, what we see on paper and reality. You have to move away from all the noise that's in the media around everything and actually look at the numbers that are taking place right now. So construction would be a good one in as much as there haven't really been, there wasn't the lull in activity that everyone was probably expecting around October time, um, despite the fact that, as management saying, it's hard to get stuff to stack up at the moment. But of course, again, there's a bit more of a lag. And if you're a professional developer slash house builder, whatever, you're always going to be constructing something. But you'd have expected much more of a drop-off. In, and I'm not, not really just talking construction, the PMI, all these sorts of indices are not have not been painting as bad a picture as the overall noise in the media has been. So you translate that through into retail, for example, you would have thought that people would be maybe a little bit more cautious with their pennies and everything before Christmas. I haven't seen the figures yet, but from volume of of round and about, I'd say retail-wise, things would have done really well. I'd say from a hospitality perspective, maybe not so well, maybe not as well as expected. But we're still sort of, I still feel like we're kind of waiting on this clip for this final lag or this one event to come. And it's never really one event. You know, you either have a black swan that triggers something or you have a kind of death by a thousand cuts or a walk on the tightrope kind of progression. It feels at the moment to me like we're still more walking on the tightrope and inflation will paper over a few cracks, maybe. What are your thoughts, Manish? Yeah, so I, mean, I think it's, firstly, it's a really relevant question because, you know, if you're, if you're talking about stock markets, there's, there's only one thing that matters. It's earnings growth, right? So you, that's basically the, that's the only question you need to answer. It's not, not always an easy question to come up with, not always an easy answer to come up with. But, you know, that's ultimately what determines stock market growth, right? So corporate earnings. And so last year, 2022, Global corporate earnings grew by 6%, I think it was. So we still had positive growth last year, despite everything that was going on. And this year, they're expected to grow by 5%. Okay, so so all else being equal, we've still got positive growth. Add on top of that um, any dividends, right? So you're potentially looking at double-digit um, growth on paper. Earnings growth plus dividends, right? Now, the, the one variable will be whether we get a deep recession. There's already a recession kind of expected, certainly in the UK. But if we get a deep recession, there'll be downward pressure to this year's earnings growth expectations. So that 5% might evaporate if we then sometime during the year, dis, you know, discover that actually macro conditions are a lot weaker. You know, so far they're holding up. So far, GDP growth seems to be holding up in the US. In the UK, we'll probably have a minor recession um, at the, as things stand right now. 
which could get worse during the course of the year. But, uh, you know, the recession risk is what determines corporate earnings growth. And so far, you know, in the US at least, that seems to be holding up okay. If we do avoid a recession in the US, and remember, I talk a lot about the US because the US really sets the tone for the world, right, Um, in terms of global equities. And if we do avoid a recession, I think equities will do well because that 5% then might become 7 or 8% growth in earnings. So that's what we're really going to wait for, really, to see how that turns out. And and obviously, earnings and cash flows are two different things. If you if like us, you operate your own small businesses or SME businesses. One thing that's often kind of misunderstood from the outset is profits versus cash flows. For example, many small businesses have taken out bounce back loans or C-bills and on paper, they might be showing a profit, but there might be nothing in the bank to actually pay themselves dividends. And that's because things like your bounce back loans come off, you're repaying them. So that although it's showing as profit, you're actually, you're, it's hitting your cash flows quite hard and you're paying them tax on those profits. So come the kind of tax year, just make sure that if you are one of these people that has, has taken out one of these loans, you're making sure you're setting aside money to pay that tax maybe before you pay yourself. Otherwise you might get a little bit of a shock, but um, it translates in the same kind of way into bigger businesses and it can look like you're making a good profit and but actually if there's no kind of cash flows out there to pay dividends for example then that can sometimes come out in the wash but sometimes it can take a bit of a while to come out in the wash Mm. and certainly you might be looking at a stock where you think it's very great buy and then it could take six months for actually people to cotton on that, do you know what, there are no free cash flows in this and because they've all been eaten up through various other forms. So just something to think about there. Um, right, we better, just before we get on to our picks, I want to run through some of the picks that we've done previously. There was the infamous pick by someone who shall remain nameless. It was me, Meta, that is currently (laughs) down from that point by 26%. So a bit of a shocker there. I thought it was great value when it had already dropped by about 30%. It dropped far more. So there was a bit of a, a loss there. I do actually still think it's a good buy, especially at this price. I won't dwell on the reasons why. You can go back and listen to one of the previous episodes. So that one, unfortunately, hasn't worked out so far, but obviously we're in it for the long haul. Um, One that did work out much better was the last pick, Q3, which was Antofagasta, a copper mining one, which is up 34% within that, just in that quarter. So that's great. It uh, makes up for those terrible losses from Meta. And Adam had a pick, well, where he shorted the UK government bonds. That worked out really well. And then if you bought bonds back at sort of when they were yielding, the UK gilt market was, uh, I think, the 30-year and the 10-year were yielding over 4%, almost 4.5%. So, again, those are doing really well as well. Manish was doing some options, buying options into Microsoft, which looks like it has done pretty well on those option on the returns from the options as well. And then it's a good solid company to buy as well. So go back if you haven't listened to the previous three masterminds and have a look at, at what's happening. But it's always interesting to see 
where things go, not just in the long term, but also in the short term, weighs a lot of volatility. And I, I will be taking some of the, the gains out of that Antofagasta that's happened in the short term and uh, maybe, who knows, plugging them back into better and putting my money where my mouth is. Um, so on to the picks this month. Uh, who would like to go first? Any takers? I don't know. I don't think I've been first yet, have I? So okay. you get me out of the way quite easy because I think it's quite easy, but it'll also stimulate a bit of discussion, I'm sure, as well. And right. um, I, I can't go back and claim, you know, if we recorded this a few weeks ago, the price was lower or whatever, because I'm, I'm obviously not that sort of operator, Rob, as you know. Um, gone for a buy on gold. And it's something I've been sort of watching for what feels like years and years with real interest um, because. There were certain expectations around gold around the time of the pandemic. There was a bit of a charge last year when inflation numbers started to creep up significantly. Well, the world fell out of the bottom of it, really. Um, it, it was really, really volatile. Um, but I do, and this is really based around my own thoughts around its worth as an inflation hedge, my own thoughts around whether crypto um, has really come into has really brought to bear as a, an alternative to gold for hedging purposes against inflation. Probably not, given the crypto events. Although I actually think, uh, as someone who's never bought any crypto as yet, if I, I, I did, I did toss up whether Ethereum would be my pick today. But that was my that was my my second one. Um, but I thought I'll stick with gold. Um, I think it, it could well have a fair bit further to run this year, even though we've picked up off the bottom pricing by a couple of hundred dollars an ounce so when, now. When you say gold, do you mean you're going to go out and buy physical bullion or are you going to buy gold mining stocks, equities? or what, 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 what is it that you would be looking at here? So not mining stocks, directly although that is obviously one way to do it um again can be even more volatile apart from anything else um but in terms of gold etfs rather than going out and buying the physical kruger runs or, or one of uh, you might want to hold it um so that would be my, my my preference because i'm holding it as a store of value rather than worrying too much about the overall global financial system going into meltdown so I think this is really interesting. I remember having a conversation with you, I think in around March or February of 2020, just as the pandemic was going on. And I think I said something along the lines of I'm selling everything and buying gold mining stocks or something like that, which I didn't do, but wouldn't have worked out too great. Um, one thing that does concern me about this is gold at the moment is priced in US dollars. And Actually, in US dollars, it's not really done much. In other currencies, it's not done too badly. Now, when you're buying gold, you're almost saying, are you concerned about a the US dollar, for example, weakening? Are you concerned that there might any gains in gold might be offset against a weaker currency? Yeah, it's a great question. I think from I think we had a chat about the Dixie. On, uh, on record, but between the two of us, uh, early November sort of time, where it was trading at an outrageous strength against other currencies. Um, and it's come back a lot since then. You know, I think they were up about, I'm sure I heard 116 at some point, but I think certainly 112, 114 
Do you just um, want to explain what that is, Adam? The basket of currencies versus the U.S. It's basically a, a measure of the relative strength of the U.S. dollar against the other major currencies in the world. Um, so 100, I can't remember the date at which they set the 100 as, as they do with any index, but started last year, you know, in the mid-90s, touched 116, 115, and is now back to more like 104. So not... 4% more relatively strong than usual. So I think still this all depends on, you know, flop strength and depth of recessions, doesn't it? Because there is much more demand for US dollars in these situations, as there's also often more demand for gold when there's more fear. I'm kind of, I'm, I suppose some of this is predicated against my view of, um, we had a, a big wobble, last year in the UK gilt markets, an incredible world, the likes we haven't seen before because we weren't around when there were world wars and things like that. And there was such a lot of movement and it wasn't helped. The historical blame is going to be placed on trust and quieting. Of course, of course it is. But it was all exacerbated by this leveraged uh, liability-driven investment in the pension funds. Now, we didn't know anything, unless Manish, Manish can prove me wrong, he might have been one of the few people who did understand it. I had no idea about any of that before it hit the headlines, or hit the financial headlines anyway. My worry is that there's half a dozen things in the US that I've not heard of, and none of us have heard of at the moment, that might find some rocky grounds this year. And, you know, you look at how volatile the gilt market can be on the back of what happens in Japan, you know, if you want to see real volatility, if something happens in the US market, there'll be a really, really significant move. And as soon as it looks like if it was to like any of the major governments of the world were going to default on anything, my goodness me, this could, this is a play that could have a lot of upside, is what I'm really thinking, Rodders. But I like to shoot for the Hail Mary sometimes, you know, but I think it, underlying it's a, it's a decent enough play with a massive potential upside to it. And what's the downside? Well... I mean, you, you've said the primary one, I think, in as much as if the dollar weakens and money is flowing into it, if the one that looks like it's going to default is the US, for example, then that would be more problematic, of course, and that'll send the index the wrong way and it'll send the, the pricing the wrong way. Um, it should be, I mean, if you look at last year, it traded in a pretty wide range, $600 range on something that traded around about 1800 for the year. So it had a 33% bottom to top. So it's pretty volatile, given that you should really be investing in it as a, a long-term store of value, I suppose. And the, the historical returns, amazing. You know, it tends to keep up with inflation. So it's not something like managers saying you, you're going into earnings environments that have put on 5 6 7% in the last few years, more in 2021. Um, it's not yield. It's not throwing off any cash, is it? It's just the price. I'm surprised at this pick by you. I never thought we normally like a bit of kind of value, income, sort of based on that. So, yeah. I'm thinking in three months' time, there's going to be cheaper times to buy some income stuff. But well, I could be wrong. Manish, any comments from you? Yeah, I mean, I think Adam's buying it for the reasons he believes in. You know, he's mentioned the fear trade. The problem I have with gold is that a lot of people, there's a bit of a misconception out there that people kind of associate gold as an inflation hedge. But if you look at the sort of historical performance, I mean, just look at the last two years, 2021 and 2022, those are the years when inflation really re-emerged and took off. But actually gold in US dollar terms was down both years. 
right? Um, so that's why I think people need to understand why they're buying gold. And Adam's talked about all these potential uh, skeletons in the cupboard, in the gilt markets, etc. And if there is a fear, you know, it's always been a good fear trend. So if you go back to COVID in March 2020, if you go back to the global financial crisis in 08, 09, that's when gold really took off. It's a fear trade, but it's not really an effective inflation trade, um, not historically, um, not in recent history anyway. So I think you kind of need to know why you're buying it. And it's a great inf- fear trade, as I mentioned. It doesn't have income, which is why I don't, I've don't. never been a big fan of it. It's a bit like Bitcoin and crypto. You don't really get solid income. I prefer things with, with income and income growth more specifically. But look, as a diversified portfolio, if you're looking for some protection, a fair trade in addition to any growth assets, you know, gold could have a place in your portfolio, I think. So yeah, it works from that perspective. If you really believe something calamitous is about to happen, then yeah, I think gold will just, you know, massively outperform if that's the case. Great. Hello, everyone. I just wanted to take a minute to mention the Boardroom Club. As it's January, many people are looking towards the next year, 2023, at their goals and aspirations. Myself and Adam Lawrence set up the Boardroom Club as we found that there are plenty of support for people who are starting out in property, but not much for property businesses who are established but still want to grow. Property can be a lonely industry for business leaders, and often they don't get an opportunity to get second opinions on decisions or an outside perspective. So we wanted to take the best things out of corporate environment and put them into a structured setting for property business owners. We also found that SME property business owners would often focus on the assets themselves and get caught up in the day-to-day running rather than actually growing the business in a sustainable way. The Boardroom Club holds the business owners accountable for the performance of their businesses. The other members, along with Adam and myself, act as board advisors and ensure that the business owner is driving their organisation forward, providing support and insight on challenges and allowing the business owners to ensure that they are making the best decisions for the good of the business and its shareholders. The programme starts with a three-hour one-to-one session with myself and Adam, where we run through a strategic plan for the business for the next 12 months. The idea of this is to break the business down and look at where there are risks and opportunities, as well as to provide a solid platform from which the business can grow sustainably. We then look at where the business needs to focus on for the next 12 months, and we break this down into key result areas and KPIs for which the other members can hold the business leader to account. The Boardroom Club meets on the second Wednesday of each month, and this is a whole day. Each business presents their board statement to the members, and we discuss key issues and come up with action plans for the month, as well as checking on KPIs. Myself and Adam also present a deep dive into a specific relevant subject. Halfway through the month, we also set up one-to-one calls with either myself and Adam to run through how you were getting on with any specific issues and passing the KPIs for a month. We currently have three openings coming up in Q1 of 2023. If this sounds like something that you think would benefit your business, please get in touch with me. You can email me at rod at incomethroughproperty.co.uk or contact me via LinkedIn or social media. Let's get back to the show. So, Manish, do you want to go next, or do you want me to go next? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to go next. So my pick is REIT. It's a bit of a risky one, but I, I like REITs because, you know, I, I prefer REITs to property, to physical property at this stage. And that's because REITs have kind of really reflected all the potential damage that's going to be happening in the physical property market. So if you look at um, some of these REITs, they were down 30, 40 percent in 2022 because of rising rates, recession fears, all of those things. And and I think it could be an opportunity. We might be close to an opportunity to picking these things up. So you've got good yields. You know, with some of these, I know, Rod, you had a supermarket REIT on in one of your podcast episodes. And, you know, something like that is trading with a yield of 5 6%, pretty steady. There are others which were stock market darlings three or four years ago. So some of the industrial REITs, warehouse REITs, Tritax, Big Box, warehouse REITs. And now they're trading at 20 30 40% discount to their NAVs. So the market's really sort of um, putting a distressed valuation on their assets, uh, certainly compared to their sort of official valuations. Um, but, you know, they're the more risky end of the spectrum, but you see you're still getting really chunky discounts to their NAVs. Plus you're getting six, 7% yields on them. One or two of the other ones I am potentially looking at are some healthcare REITs. So, there are a couple of healthcare REITs which own care homes in the UK. One is Impact Healthcare REIT, another one is Target. And they're both trading at decent discounts to their NAVs and giving good yields. So what I'm talking about really is REIT, you know, REITs are like a halfway house between equities and property, but they're more liquid and they tend to you know, reflect the fundamentals far more quickly than physical property. So I think if you're interested in property, you know, REITs could be a good way of front running might what might happen this year and almost effectively buying assets at below market value, you know, now compared to waiting for property six, 12 months time. The other advantage with REITs is that, you know, they're very, very tax efficient. So you can hold these REITs in your ISAs, in your pensions, and you never have to pay any tax unlike you know physical property and there's no hassle which is really important so you're not managing tenants toilets and boilers and all the rest of it so i think you know from a passive income perspective tax efficient perspective reits can work out quite well and right now you're getting distressed valuations in some of these things and if you don't want to take on the responsibility of choosing your your reits the right reits because there's a there's a fair bit to it you need to look at the gearing levels and all the rest of it there is there are two REIT ETFs available in the UK and they give you a diversified exposure to all the different REITs so you don't really have to make the decision you just sort of almost set and forget using a REIT ETF so yeah that's my pick I'm going to go the with the diversified REIT ETF the ticker is IUKP which is the iShares REIT brilliant yeah, sorry the iShares ETF I should say yeah, I really like that pick. I, I've got to admit, when, after I had the supermarket read on, I did actually buy some of that. And I think it's probably on the safer side, more defensive side of, of REITs, um, even though it is, like you say, trading still at a discount to its NAV, which is the net asset value. So I think that's interesting. My only, I guess, talk about what my concerns would be, all these things are trading below their net asset value. Is that net asset value going to change in the future based on these earnings? So that's my number one concern there. Are you 
are we thinking we're buying at a discount where really it's just a paper discount and the reality is those asset values are going to be coming down over time and then my second concern which you you highlighted already was push home the point is is about the gearing and the rate and actually i think there's some really really robust reits out there that have very very low gearing for example the supermarket we're talking about they've uh, fixed all their gearing their loan to value is currently under 30% and their the rate they're paying is under 2.8% and on average that's fixed for 4 years so things like that it's very secure it's also then looking so that's one part to look at and then the other part is again back to earnings growth where mm. what are those industries where we feel there's going to be earnings growth because that's really where i want to i want to be so when you talk about kind of warehouses are we thinking that those warehouses are going to increase their rents over time is that likely what are some of their what are some of the industries that we feel has growth in so yeah like i say i i'm pretty bullish on reits as well i think they're good i just wanted to highlight sort of concerns but i still benefit i think just to add to that rod i mean you raise some really interesting points and you know it's worth highlighting the risks so some of these reits are more economically sensitive so the warehouse industrial reits they are super industry super economically sensitive so if we have a deep recession they you know you could argue that those discounts to navs are justified mm. you know you can make that argument whereas the more defensive ones like supermarket reads which you mentioned those care home reads you know these are somewhat detached from economic um, reality right so they're they're reasonably recession proof so you know we're always going to need care homes we're always going to need supermarkets so you know you can argue they're the safer end of the spectrum so yeah you're right i mean you have to differentiate between all the different ones um you have to sort of look at the gearing levels as well because one of the reasons why their share prices did come off a lot last year was because of rates going up and their navs are sensitive to interest rates so you know some of it is justified i would just say the the question you have to ask is these discounts to their navs are they overdone and i think at 40% for some of them might be overdone um you know that so you just got to be careful about how you pick them so yeah no good points adam any comments i think you guys have said the main the main stuff i mean if i look at how the reits performed over 2020 particularly commercial commercially focused ones in 2020 they took more of a bath than certainly my portfolio did and the commercial elements of my portfolio that wouldn't necessarily be directly comparable obviously um i'm i'm always concerned about the we seem to be in a world now where the edge has come through more active asset management and the reits of notoriously not really wanted to participate in that so i have the same primary concern as you rod in as much as we really looking at true values i mean i'm looking at yields that come out of the, the big four big five surveying property firms and thinking they're just not smelling the coffee yet they're moving very 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 slowly whereas in reality there's been a big price adjustment so I, I would be, and you'd obviously have to look into every individual one to see if that is a, a real and genuine discount. And I think I might have made this point before. My property investment is not just trying to 
actively buy things that are below their true value, which I do very much like. It's also seeing where the market is not valuing something correctly and then buying it. So, for example, if retail is struggling and therefore secondary retail is 12% yield, of course, I'm going to try and buy it on a 15% yield. But underlying that, I also would probably want to be believing that the, the right yield for that might be 9 or 10%. It's just the market currently says 12 and therefore I'm buying value inherently in the first place. So I'm kind of getting a bit of a layering of value in that way. And that would be whether that applies to uh, to exactly what Manish is saying. I'm not sure, but that would be my idea of an insurance policy. I mean, the tax point is a great one and it's a, it's a key one, um, but we're still going to make profit to benefit from tax shields as well. So we do need to, to bear that in mind, but I'm always interested in REITs and loved your your broadcast episode with Ben on that supermarket one. Fantastic. I think the asset management point's interesting, possibly a bit unfair, some REITs might say. I think when you've got some of the smaller REITs, you tend to find their asset management is a lot more sharper. There's a bit more risk because of the size of the REIT as well. So again, I think it all kind of comes out in the wash, what you pay for, where how risk adjusted it is and things like that, mm. just to make that point. Okay, fantastic. So my pick is I'm going for bond ETF, a high yield bond ETF. And I was a bit torn really whether to go for an emerging markets high yield bond ETF or, and these are both inflation linked, sorry, or a US inflation linked high yield bond ETF. So most of these are kind of corporate bonds as well. Now, just to give some idea behind it. So for example, the Bloomberg inflation linked local bond is currently yielding 13.5%. There's a US inflation linked one, which is 9.2%. So these are looking pretty good. Now, what I like about the US one is I think, I do think inflation is peaking there. So I'd expect the capital values of those bonds to start increasing and the yields coming down. So I think they're a good buy. My concern there is the currency issue with the US dollar. Will that be coming down as, as inflation comes down versus other currencies? And then obviously the emerging markets one, there's a bit more risk there to come out. I think I do think the US is kind of leading the way in terms of what of where its inflation is at versus some other countries. But again, being inflation linked, it does tend to help. I think if I've got to choose one, I'm probably going to go ahead with the the emerging markets one, actually, just because, again, it's the pricing. When you're getting those high yields, I do expect globally things to be coming down now where you've got kind of China starting to reopen and things like that. I'm a bit more positive globally, I think, than I maybe am just uh, solely on the UK at the moment. So love to hear your your thoughts on that. Manish, do you want to go? Yeah, it's an interesting pick. Look, emerging markets are an area which have been completely neglected over the last few years. Right. We've got lots of sort of negative news flow in China and, you know, obviously Eastern Europe with what's going on there as well. Right. So some of the regions within global emerging market space have not been in a good place. And one of the things that I've been thinking about actually 
this year is that you know emerging market valuations are super cheap if you look at equities i know you're not talking about equities but it's still talking about emerging markets you know their valuations reflect how unloved they are so we're talking four five six times earnings you know four five six times pe's and decent yield so i think you know it depends on currency right so if if the us dollar so it depends on which way the US dollar goes. If the US dollar strengthens this year, then emerging markets, there's always an inverse correlation between the US dollar and emerging markets. So when the dollar's rising, emerging markets tend to do badly. When the US market, when the US dollar is falling, emerging markets do quite well. Now we've had a couple of years, if not longer, of US dollar strength. The US rate cycle is more advanced than most other, uh, you know, most other markets. So from that point of view, you can make a strong argument that the US dollar might actually weaken this year as other markets, you know, as rate increases start to take shape in Europe and Japan and all the rest of it. So if we take that as a starting point, you can make an argument that the US dollar might weaken, which will give strength to emerging markets just based on that sequence. So I think for me, emerging markets is a bit of a um, it's a bit of a speculative um, buy this year I think you know it could surprise people because of how unloved it is so I I'm glad you chose the emerging markets one over the US one Rod because I think that could potentially do quite well the only risk is for me is the US dollar um, you know move whether that goes up or down and so if it goes up that would be a potential risk for me I do think in the short term it probably will go up but I think longer term wise I'm making my bet that it will come down versus other currencies mm. So I think there might be a bit more short-term volatility, but I still think the pricing's pretty good buying in those yields right now. Adam? Really interesting one. I love it. It's, uh, you know, always buy the unloved. That's very much uh, the way forward and be contrarian has managed to develop a tough time, a tough time in 2020, let alone before Ukraine and everything else. So I do like that side of it. Um, the high yield bonds has been really I don't understand what the fallout of a lot of high yield bonds markets will be. It's something I've been looking at with interest for about the last six months in that you're looking at, for example, companies that lend money, bridging and development finance, back, back to sort of property related, whose secondary market corporate bonds are trading above what they're lending the money out the door for, certainly on their wholesale rates, which obviously isn't a sustainable situation. And that will be something that corrects itself over time rather than something that's adjusted particularly quickly. Not something we've really talked about, I don't think, but the expense of debt and how much that government can afford it uh, was another really interesting stat from last year. You know, there's plenty of stuff on the internet that tells you the US can't sustain anywhere near sustain a 5% base rate. Um, and the Bank of England would never as convinced as um, I've ever seen them when they were saying that the base rate would never hit 6%. It's that use of the word never that worries me in financial situations because that's exactly the, the sort of bumps in the road that I was I was talking about if one of them happens to blow up. So um, I think it's fair to say it probably won't be a break-even trade, Rod. That's the, that's the uh, <laughs> and I, I, I will follow it with interest because I, I like the reasoning. I like, I like why you've done it. It's whether... Now is the time for the doldrums to be over. Um, let's see. 
Before we leave, I just wanted to read out something from, I believe it's from Rob Capito, and I think he is president over at uh, BlackRock. And he wrote something quite interesting at the end of of last year, so a couple of months ago, this was. So he, he said, the markets in 2022 have certainly disrupted the traditional portfolio allocations from the past. Traditional 60-40 allocations are certainly out of balance and portfolio liquidity profiles have also been impacted. And now for the first time in years, investors can actually earn very attractive yields without taking much duration or credit risk. Just a year ago, the US two-year treasury notes were yielding 25 basis points. And today they're earning well over 4%. Corporate bonds are over 5% and high yield is above 9%. So to give you a helpful context, if we go back to 1995, to get a 7.5% yield, which is what many institutions were looking for, our portfolio would be 100% in bonds. If you fast forward 10 years in 2005, it had to be 50% bonds and 40% equities and 10% alternatives to get that same yield. Then move another 10 years, and in 2016, you needed only 15% bonds, 60% equities, and 25% alternatives to get the same result. This describes the growth of several markets. Now today, to get that same 7.5% yield, a portfolio could be 85% bonds, and then 15% equities and alternatives. And as you know, over the last several years, most of our clients, both institutional and retail, have been underweighted in fixed income. I just thought that was really interesting kind of bit of context to put there. Obviously, inflation adjusted and things like that. But it's all well and good talking about inflation adjusted returns when everyone's losing money. (laughs) Because actually, if you're losing money, it's all well and good to say, well, that's not going to beat inflation. But will it be better than the benchmark of the market, which is actually losing money without the inflation risk. So I thought, yeah, just it's an interesting thing to kind of finish on, really. Thanks a lot, guys. As always, it's been great to have you on and very interesting to see all the picks and looking forward to three months' time when we do it all again. Thanks, Rod. Thanks, Manish. Thanks, Rod. Cheers, Adam.